0: Before we get started, I just want to make a reminder to everybody that the information uh, discussed today is not to be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult investment advice.
1: The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just tell you, keep it to Bitcoin.
0: Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode thirty-three. As always, joined by the three amigos, we got Rich Diaz, of Acorn Macro Consulting, uh, looking sexy as ever, and we got Keith Dicker of IceCap Asset Management, of course everyone's favorite broomer, and, and a brand new Patagonia jacket. Uh, welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Markets must be good for Keith there. Uh, those, those Pataguchis aren't cheap, so. Um, but uh, I mean, yeah, I guess we'll we'll kick things off here. Um, Really, with uh, June 1st coming up on the clock, uh, the Bank of Canada rate hike announcement, everybody asking. So we got uh, some of these Twinkies on the line. Keith, I don't know if you got any left after devouring your last box there, but what are we thinking here? Um, let, let's kind of start the show off with a bang. Bank of Canada rate hike forecasts. Um,
1: wh- what are we thinking, Rich? Um, I think they'll do what's expected, um, which is boring, perhaps. But I'm not ready to better. <laughs> I'm not ready to eat a Twinkie just yet. I'm still recovering from my my last foray into the into into, into the depths of sugar and depravity. Um, I think what two rate hikes are priced in, right? If I'm not mistaken, guys, just check me on that. Um, uh, it's fifty basis points. Yeah. So sorry. Excuse me. Sorry. Fifty basis points. Um, in general, one rate hike is twenty five basis points. Um yeah so I think that they'll do what they've you know what's been priced in. Um I think we're in a in a situation where what's going on in the markets um and what's going on in the housing sector is being trumped by a desperate um claw for credibility. I mean, I think central bankers especially in the west have sort of lost credibility significantly. Um if you heard Christine Lagarde over the, over the last few weeks, you can understand why. Um, we're going to touch on the housing sector yeah. as well. But I just think, um, and so I think now it's not about what's sort of the right, in inverted commas, thing to do with respect to assets or the housing or even inflation, which um, I know we're not going to talk about it today, but I think is sort of rolling over. Um, but I think it's about you know regaining um, the lost credibility that they have. Um, and so, yeah, I think that they'll do uh, the 50 basis points. Sorry, boys. 50 beeps. Keith,
2: you want to take a I'm contrarian it. bet here? No, I'm not. I'm not a uh, I might be dumb, but I'm not stupid. This is uh, mm-hmm. this is 50 basis points, guys. You know, it's kind of like uh, like I really like American football. That that's my sport that, that I watch and you have to know when is the when is the opportunity, you know, to really push it hard on on, on something, like whether it's on the defensive side or offensive side. So for all the uh, people out there in the loony hour world, you know, really looking forward to some Twinkies being chowed down, um, I don't see this as an opportunity to to attack a plate of Twinkies at this point in time. Coming up, though, may- maybe the uh, the meeting afterwards. But right now, for example, I-, I suspect they'll do 50 basis points next week. And then the next meeting is July 13th. And uh, that should be another... That one is in play. As of right now, it's 50 basis points. But maybe that's the one where the Twinkie will come on. And we'll know more about that next week after they uh, come over. But, uh, you know, Reggie... Well, yeah, sorry. That... Can, can oh, you whoa, 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 One second. Yeah, one, one second, though. As they say, like, in... You know, when you're playing poker, if you don't know who the patsy is, the patsy is you. And I think right now, Rich, Steve's looking at the table and he doesn't know who the patsy is. So, who? <laughs> Why are, are you taking Steve?
0: Oh, I'm not taking anything here. I'm going 50 basis points. Too. Oh, <laughs> yeah, the house, the housing shell is calling for 50 basis points. Um, right. I think it's it's pretty obvious. Like it's kind of it's already baked in the cake, right? And like inflation as we've talked about in the show, inflation in Canada is still high. So it's like that political pressure. Um, housing market is definitely rolling over, but it's still very early days. Right. So it's not like, it's just way too soon to panic. Like, yeah, there's lots of people up like Shits Creek without a paddle in Ontario, um, that, you know, are stuck with two houses now that they can't sell because they already bought one and, and the market dumped when they went to sell their own property. So, you know, we're hearing a lot of that, some litigation
1: stories. Um, I think we'll see more fraud going forward. I mean, I know this is your lane, but I think we're starting to see a little bit of fraud creep up. Oh here. yeah. I mean, I think there's always fraud at the height of a
0: bull market, right? I mean, it's, it's only when the tide goes out, DC, you, you know, I think there's a lot of people that, you know, you got to hear these anecdotal stories where, you know, the market's going up and everyone just looks and says, Oh my gosh, like if I don't get on this housing ladder, like, how am I going to, ever own a house. And so they'll do whatever it takes to, to get in. And, and so, yeah, we definitely heard lots, you know, quite a few stories. I wouldn't say it's widespread, but there's definitely stories of, of document fraud and and uh, people doing whatever it takes with um, some shady brokers to get, to get deals done. And those people are probably going to be overstretched, over levered, he- heading into a down cycle here. Um, you yeah, know, I think we're going to be in a bear market for housing, you know, I mean, the last one was
2: two years, and I think this one could could be a minimum couple of years. Um, so, Keith. Steve, I'm I'm a little like I'm a little naive about the whole housing market, and <laughs> what would some of these, um, you know, what, what's the word you use for to describe? What, what kind of what what are people doing to make it a bit? not nice or you know what's happening in the real estate world that i'm not (laughs) aware of i don't (laughs) trade
0: oh well i mean yeah you hear these two again i don't it's not me so don't look at me you know here comes the like i really have no idea rcmp on my knocking on my door here uh you know i mean we we hear stories and i've had a couple conversations with mortgage brokers like yeah well these guys tried to like send me this and it was clearly fake you know so like getting like documented like fake t4s for example right like Oh, you know, we you may earn 100 hundred hundred or fake employment letters, you know, stuff like that, right? So it's really just like boot trying to boost their 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 basically their income so they can qualify for, you know, the, the house that they want to purchase, right? So, um, and and you know, like Brampton, Ontario is kind of like known as like mortgage fraud capital uh, of Canada, and and I think like you know the equivalent here in BC, and like, yeah, I mean, there's probably some shady stuff going on in like Surrey um if i was to again that's not like trying to pinpoint but it's like we just know like you just look there and you're like well look at the prices and it's just anyways brampton is known as that i would say surrey is like our local bc equivalent of like what you're
2: you're saying but what you're telling me though it's on the the income side like isn't it verified if i come to you and i you know i tell you i'm making this much money and i show you a t4 and tax returns the, the entity or the issuer of, of the loan, aren't they making a half an effort to verify Let me tell you how the, the real world accurate? works, Keith? Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't, don't know. know. <laughs> I mean, this is I'm, I'm just naive, right? I don't know. Yeah,
0: this is part of the problem is that Canada is like so outdated. Like, okay, government, government, and technology and innovation do not go hand in hand at all and so it would be very very simple to tie you know your cra or your t4 incomes into into the banking system right like it should all be looped into one but it's not like they basically just like they ask you to send like whatever a pdf form of of your t4 email that to your mortgage broker so if you've got a fake t4 i could I imagine it's not that hard. What do you they,
1: mean,
2: and again, I, is it's not, not tied world? into
0: a central system, so they can't just yeah. like go in and check and be like, oh, wait a minute, like CRA says you, you know, you you declared 120k as a house as a as, a, as an income last year, but your T four that you just sent us says 180. Like, the, there's not there's not that verification process or system. Is, is from from what I understand, it's not it's not the systems aren't linked. Into each other to to basically make those proofs.
2: Hey, uh,
1: Bitcoin fixes that. <laughs> <laughs> that Is that sort of right? Did I use actually. that right? I think you I mean, did. It kind of does. Blockchain it would does. probably fix that. Yeah, it could. But there's there's uh, one more thing. I think you're. I mean, you're skirting around it. So I'm. You know, in in an effort to get us banned from Twitter after they passed Bill C11, I'm just gonna lay it out there. The RCMP does not prioritize white collar crime in this country. I mean, it's very very. It's been very, it's very clear. I mean, I've read some of the reports on money laundering. There's one in 2018. That's really interesting. I mean, in, in, in Vancouver, they shuttered the financial crimes unit there once they started sniffing around the BC casinos, which I'm sure you know all about Steve, but like, that's, I mean, I'm not encouraging people to commit white-collar crime, yeah. but if you're ever gonna do it, if this is the country. I mean, let's just call a spade a spade, right? I mean, that's just um it's a real shame. I think it's it's pernicious and nasty, and I think people don't see it as real crime because no one's bloodied, um, you know, um, thank goodness no one. because if know, it's, it's not
2: it. money laundering, then it's really just someone lying about the income to get But it's their fraud. House. I mean, it's it's but fraud eventually... and it's white-collar crime. Uh, correct, but if if I'm just Lying on my T four, how much money I made, so I can get the initial mortgage. And I'm not washing money; like it, it just this is how much. This is what I have to say to get the mortgage. Eventually, I won't be able to make the payment. Correct? Like two, three months, five months down the well, road. Well, I don't something? know about that. I mean, I think these people think that they can make the
0: payment, or 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 or. For example, you might have like, I don't know. I'm just throwing this out there. Like maybe maybe you're like a business owner. And you make, you know, your business and you're making a lot of money, but like for, for tax reasons, you're not declaring like high incomes to the government, which is like strategically a smart tax move. But like the, the banks will still look at that and say, well, we want, they take your best, they take your, they take your last two years of salaried income. So if you're running a million dollar business, but declaring like a 50 K income, well, you basically can't get any credit. Have
2: right? you ever so, seen, have you ever heard of real estate transactions where like a bag of cash is used for the transaction. <laughs> You're trying to get no, I, yeah. I have it. I think
0: those are just like these fantasies like tales that the media draws up to get people like fired up. I, I mean, obviously, I think everybody knows like there's definitely some illicit money and in, in uh parts of Canada, particularly in Vancouver and some of the like the higher end luxury stuff. Like it's a lot of it's done through like blind trust and stuff. Um, you know, I think there's are just definitely an element of the, there's a couple probably rogue, uh, communist Chinese communist party, uh, homeowners here in, in Vancouver, but yeah, it's not like bags of cash floating around and like widespread mortgage document fraud, but like there definitely is an element of that. And I think that always picks up near the end of the, of the bull cycle. And, um, Yeah, I don't know what else can I say. I think the housing market, as we've talked about, continues to slow. I mean, national house prices declined for the first time on a month-over-month basis since April of 2020. So two years. So it was like a very marginal 0.6 percent decline. So not enough to get the Bank of Canada sweating yet. But um, all I can say is the underlying dynamics, more so in Ontario and definitely in parts of the lower mainland here in Vancouver, sales activity has plummeted and uh, you're seeing some really aggressive price discounting in the suburbs where all that like excess froth was where like everybody packed in at highs. Um, like we're seeing, I'm seeing like detached houses in suburbs. So like Abbotsford Langley mission, like 45 minutes outside of Vancouver like, 15 20 declines from the highs like highs were in february so
1: it's a pretty aggressive move in three months can, can i just um i mean that that's crazy i, I can i just like just i know our twinkie bet wasn't is kind of sort of a damp squib given we all sort of agree Um. so maybe i just wanted to um give a little bit of color as far as what other central banks are also doing Um, and so we, so internally we, uh, track 32 central banks, which I don't know what percentage of GDP this is of global GDP, but it's a lot. So I mean, us, Canada, ECB, I'm not going to read them all, but I mean, everything from Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, Peru, Latin American countries. And right now we're at 22 of the 32 countries are raising or have raised rates basically in the last, let's say two or three months, um, depending. Some of them only raise rates once a quarter, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, all of Latin America basically is raising rates. Asia, which was sort of slow to the party um, because China's cutting, um, you're starting to see uh, rate rises in Asia. India just did one. Um, you know, Philippines, Taiwan, Malaysia, South Korea has been raising rates for a while. So you just seeing across the board um, so, you know, Canada's not alone. Um, Canada probably has one of the lowest real interest rates, right? Adjusted for inflation out there. But yeah, just to give sort of some, some color. Um, so one the countries cutting second... is Russia. <laughs> anyway, yeah, but so... the
2: second, third, slash, second, slash, third largest country in the world economically is cutting rates. Yeah. Yeah. I do have a, uh, just sort of circling back to the whole Vancouver. I was in Vancouver recently. And, uh, say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was, I was at a coffee shop late one afternoon and, <laughs> and anyway, at the coffee shop bar where you're having the espresso, um, anyway, I was chatting with this guy and, and he shares with me the story that his, his friend, she's introducing money from Hong Kong into the, with the Canadian banks. I won't tell you which Canadian bank she said. Yeah. She has a real doing really well with it, And he said, she's making 50 to $60 million a year doing this. And I'm looking at the guy I said, fifty million dollars a year? Is that like the, the revenue for the bank? He said, No, oh, no, that's that's her commission for doing this stuff. To, you know, to, and he doesn't know I'm into business, Who are you talking to? Some homeless guy in the bank <laughs> over there. No, and I look at this guy, I said, Man, like that's like Tom Brady and you know Rich Diaz. Oh, you yeah. know, they don't make that much money a year. Are you sure about that? Anyway, then he asked me what I did. And I said, well, I do, I kind of do some of this stuff. And he said, well, maybe it's not quite 50 million a year, you know, but the point is though, like it's rampant out there. Like you say, Steve, like it's a different, I think
0: think also I think the narrative is rampant out there because what happens is everybody looks everyone. Like, again, I, I'm not going to dismiss it and say that it doesn't exist. Our market is heavily influenced by offshore capital. Um, But everybody just looks and says, well, I'm a nine to five. I'm a whatever firefighter and I can't afford a house. So thus there must be gross money laundering because how is everybody else affording it? And like, there's just so much capital flooding into this market from like all around the world. It's just like the safe haven. It is just ultimately, um, it really just is a place to park money, right? I mean, like if you're again, like if you're a Chinese citizen and you're like, oh man, look at all these like lockdowns in like Shanghai and Beijing, like really sweet. Like you got a communist government, like you want to get your capital out and have it parked. And and I saw, so, I mean, again, you could probably look at it as the same way as like some people invest in Bitcoin. It's like it's an asset that's outside sort of their 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 system. And it's it's a, it's a safety store of value, and so for a lot of them, it doesn't even make sense for them to rent it out, right? They, they just want to have money outside, and so there's a there's an element of that. It doesn't necessarily mean it's like money laundering, but um, I think you just have to understand. It's and, a pretty
2: and, good wash that that's going on. Yeah. Uh, let's just uh, let's just roll over quickly then, sort of in line with what which interests well, more from a bottom up. But I want to talk about the Canadian banks and the earnings. Well, you know, I was, yeah. Oh. So I was going
0: to ask you, Keith, before we get into the Canadian banks, can you just up. On your screen, there. Are you able to tell us what the what the market is pricing in for for the rest of the year for the Bank of Canada
2: rate hikes? Yeah, just one second here.
0: So I think we so, initially had. What do we have? I think we had three to four rate hikes at the beginning of the year. So we'll, so right we'll, now we're
2: at. Yeah. So right now, guys, we're at one percent. Uh, we're going to get. Uh, we the market is telling we'll be at one and a half percent in June, and then we'll be at two percent in July at two and a quarter in September, two and a half for October. Well, and now, <laughs> now it's less than 3% at year end. Remember a few weeks ago I said, it, Hey, the market is now pricing in, you know, 3% for year end. Now it's, it's actually starting to come off a little bit. So it- everyone who uh, did those Canadian bankers acceptance uh, strategies, now you can, can send me some more twinkies Keith. or something are yeah. they
0: uh, are they pricing in rate cuts yet in
1: 2023 um have been for the u.s for a while i know that i don't know what it is in canada but i know in the u.s the further out you go out the yield curve that's what it's called um, i can only maturities. see that to the end of 22 my screen
2: for you don't for have the plus premium eh? yeah i'm not paying eighty thousand dollars a year for for that option Jesus. um need to get some it, more sponsors in the loony yeah, hour here yeah maybe so uh but but you know rich is making a good point because now people are starting to anticipate you know that'll be a pause we sort of like let's just jump over to the fed now i guess that, that well no yeah you're, you're talking about the canadian banks now
0: don't, okay don't, let's do that don't, first, don't cut the
2: people short here yeah, <laughs> you want to get a bit of a snooze or conversation about bank earnings? Um, we talked so about this it, briefly last show, by the way, for everyone. That was yeah, so attention. yeah, so just yeah, just to bring it back over. Um, so, by the way, before I uh, before I I launched or founded IceCap a few years back, I was um, one of the, one of the responsibilities I had at my desk. I had to cover uh, the global financial sector. So banks, that's what you're looking at. So um, I became pretty good at moving around balance sheets and income statements and stuff like that for the banks because nobody else wanted to do it. And I you know, I thought it was interesting. But um, it's only interesting when there's a crisis. Otherwise, it's a bit of a snoozer. But what happens with Canadian banks is very different than, say, oil and gas companies. Well, they can do a bit of it as well. But like technology companies or retail stores you know, industrial companies and whatever else you want to look at. Um, Canadian banks, you know, they, they lend out a lot of money. That's where they make most of the money. And when they lend out the money, they know at a certain point in time, someone may not pay them back. So every quarter and every year that they set aside a little bit of their earnings, or it's, it is an expense, actually, as a provision for credit losses, that's what they'll call it, or loan loss provisions, that's what we used to call it. Now, I think it's PCL, I think they call it now, provision for credit losses. But effectively, they're trying to make a, a guess on what percentage of their loans will they not get paid back. So it's a very good and easy way for a bank to increase their earnings if they want to, because they can simply just claim less in potential losses on their loans, or when times are really bad, they'll just throw the whole kitchen sink in there and say, yeah, we expect no one to pay us back, you know, because they won't be, for example, when, when COVID hit back in, uh, you know, Q1 of 2020, you no, know, that was a great strategy for the banks, you know, they weren't going to get blamed for anything. Anyway, uh, what my point is that whenever Canadian banks' earnings come out, it is hot. what you see on BNN and everyone else. Oh, yeah, you know, XBC Bank, they reported X billion in, in earnings, you know, $5 a share in the estimate was for a dollar a share. You know, Canadian banks are awesome and everyone goes nuts. Yeah, yeah, yay. So I was very interested in the Canadian banks earnings coming out this week because in, in my, you know, what we expect to happen, we're going to start to see a slowdown in the economy. So I really wanted to see if the Canadian banks were starting to, Put aside more money for bad loans coming up because that's one thing that we would look at to say okay because if, if the banks are starting to provision more for credit losses, then you know they you know they have a finger on the pulse much greater than than we do. So the first thing that came out uh, so RBC came out today, and uh, so the headline was you know they had you know three dollars uh, a share for earnings for earnings per share versus the estimate was two sixty nine. So they crushed the estimates once again. It's like, holy smokes, man, these guys, they're unbelievable, how do they do it? But then you start reading the fine print. Instead of putting aside more money for bad loans, they actually clawed back $342 million, right? So that's what they're saying. We thought we were gonna lose $342 million from a previous period. Now we think things are getting so good, we'll get that money back. Analysts were expecting the bank to set aside 240 million dollars. So you add those two together, you're getting you know almost 600 million dollars, and, and if you adjust that three dollars a share earnings that RBC came out with, it really comes down to about 258. You know, which is a lot less than what analysts were expecting. So my, so, so two things here. One, of my point is that you know don't get too excited about bank earnings when they beat the estimates. You know, that comes out of Bay Street or, or Wall Street because it's so easy for these guys to move numbers around and, and and beat it. The second thing that came out, though, was that, um, so you look at RBC, you know, they're becoming, you know, they're saying, hey, we don't expect to lose much money, you know, going going forward because they settled aside, you know, they, they took money back on their loan portfolio. Um, the same thing, which was it? I think it was still, oh, TD Bank. Uh, they increased their provisioning for loan losses, but they only did it by about, 10 percent of what analysts were expecting so again they're setting aside less so from a a bottom-up perspective the canadian banks are not ringing the bell saying hey we're going to hit a recession we're really worried about or this or that um in in their mind it's still full-on full go so um either they're not worried about a recession they're not worried about the bank canada you know deflating a, a bubble of any kind but it, it, that's something for everyone who's, you know, bullish on the housing market and the economy. The Canadian banks are not signaling today, you know that they're worried about it. How's oh, that Rich? I know Rich is an optimist. He's always looking for reasons. reason what, Bob, No, I have, mean what, I was just
1: I was just gonna talk about the US banking. So I'm actually much, much more familiar with the US banking sector than the Canadian banking sector. Um, and in the US, um, you had a huge, huge uptick. I think the US has learned lessons from the great financial crisis that I don't believe Canadian banks have learned. <laughs> the understatement, perhaps of the year. But anyways, um, and in, the, in 2008, there was basically no loan provisioning, or, or in, the, in America, what they call it is allowance for loans and lease losses. Um, as what they call it in the U S every country will have a different name, but it's basically more or less the same thing. And in the U S you know, they, they did not not, as the housing market there was imploding, they were late to basically admit that these loans were never going to be paid back. And so just to give you an idea, the peak in that loan leases was June, 2010. And I think house prices had already started to stop falling and recover in some jurisdictions, whereas in 20 and then, but this time around, um, the US in, 20, in March, basically, um, you know, by basically by, by the summer of 2020, the US banks had already ratcheted up their provisions massively. And you can tell how, the, how you know, once you have a crisis, regula- regulators always drive forward looking through their rearview mirror, right? So they're always right. And in and, and, and this case, it actually worked out really well. So the past crisis really helped US banks in this particular kind of schism. And so the allowance for loans and lease losses shot up right away. And in the U S they're not going up. They're actually starting to come down um, from extreme hot, like from really, really highs so as a percentage of total. It, it's there's They're still pretty high. And then in absolute terms are high. So that that's all I want to say, Steve.
0: Oh, no, I mean, I wouldn't mind, uh, you know, just pivoting a bit here and, and uh, chatting about sort of, you know, the outlook for, for markets. So obviously we've talked about, you know, rate hike expectations for the bank of Canada. Again, I think clearly housing is already rolling over the fed released their minutes. I don't know if you guys want to chat about that, but, uh, Keith is, I think we, I might've asked you this before, but what's your, I mean, what's your opinion, maybe your guess? like how doctored, if at all, are these minutes? You mean the Fed minutes, right? Because everybody releases yeah, I, I and everyone know goes, Oh, they all agree that you know inflation is too high. thus we must hike. And I'm reading a piece, you know, today it says, you know, Ben Bernanke gave a presentation saying 98% of monetary
2: policy is just uh, talk, basically. <laughs> so there's so much money at stake all the time. And you know, they, so these minutes—they're from a meeting that took place three weeks ago. So the opportunity is absolutely available to them if they wanted to send a, a different message of some kind. Uh, the opportunity is there. I've never heard anyone talk in in my network that the, you know the minutes are getting. Um, rewritten or whatever you want you want to call it um i haven't even thought of it
1: before you, you, Massage, my just does the, the, yeah. the verbiage get it is you know. sanitized it is sanitized surely i mean whether it, how, it is I mean, but the I same remember, time oh sorry go ahead, go ahead.
2: yeah but at the same time like the, all the most of the fed members were on the like the media circuit last week as well so they always have like many opportunities to sort of you know, steer the ship in a different direction if, if they wanted to than the minutes. I haven't thought of that question before, Steve, truthfully. Uh, but I'll what I do know from... There. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but from the minutes as well as from the Fed member media rounds that they did last week, um, in the for the Americans, you should expect two meetings in a row with 50 basis points in, in hikes coming up. Uh, this is one hawkish central bank and it doesn't matter if it's the Canadians or, you know, the Swedes or anyone else. Like if the Americans are hawkish and they're walking that way, you know, everyone has to take note of it. So there there's nothing dovish about it. People who want to look for a dovish message, they might say, well, maybe they were a bit less hawkish than what people wanted. And just remind everyone, uh, so in, in our world, when we say central bank is hawkish, it means that they're uh, raising interest rates. They're making it more expensive to get money from, from the system. And if they are dovish, then it means it's easier to get money in this system. And like the point that Rich came out with there uh, a few minutes back about all the central banks that, that they follow, you know, uh, there's only a few that are actually cutting rates. And again, you know, when you have China cutting rates, um, you know, they're trying to massage their property bubble, which, which is breaking and the Americans are raising rates at the same time. Like this is, this is creating an extraordinary amount of stress on the system. And we may not see it here because, you know, financial markets, we live it in real time, but that's where we're headed. And, which I think also we had some geopolitical stuff on, on top of it, you know, with, with the little uh, lunches that are taking place in Switzerland this week, I think we need to put that on, on top. Well, yeah, no. So, good, just to add another point
0: there, because everybody says, "Oh, you know, people people always ask me, messaging me, DMing me, and all that stuff." What do you think the Bank of Canada is? What's going to happen with the rates? And it's like, you know, just to, just to reiterate, like Tiff Macklem of the BOC is more or less an irrelevant human being. Um, ouch. Uh, it, it does ultimately come from the Fed. Like the Fed basically is going to dictate Canada's monetary policy, right? So we kind of have to watch the U.S. ultimately. So guys, this, Keith, I guess I was asking you earlier. But, so the 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 uh, futures market there, forward, forward interest rate, uh, they're, they're projecting rate cuts in, in 2023 in the U.S.
2: Is that right? Or Rich, maybe that was you were saying. Uh, no, I think it's a pause. So, so right now with with the Fed... Everyone's expecting two fifties coming up, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then go down to twenty five. You know, then you're just getting the, you know, the, the slowdown and momentum with it. But it, it, remember, though, with with the Canadian banks this week, not really ringing the alarm on their loan provisioning. Mm-hmm. You know that tells me because like, remember the cent- the Bank of Canada speaks with the Canadian banks every single day. Like there's none of this. You know, they're both in you know different rooms all the time. Um, I, I suspect the bank can, like, they'll continue to be as aggressive they, as they can be until they're not able to anymore.
1: Right. So, which and, comes back I, to
2: my whole thing, which
0: is like, it's still very early in the housing market correction. Like we've only been correcting for what, two and a half, three months. So, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't be panicking as a policymaker, but all I can tell you is the underlying dynamics, um, yeah. Are and the banks
2: are not panicking yet. So yeah, I mean, that's that's what it is, Rich. We uh, Rich, we
0: were chatting about a chart there that my buddy uh, Ben Rabideau had put out, but um, that eighty five percent of over the past was it five years, eighty five percent of Canada's real GDP growth has has been derived out of housing and consumption.
1: Yeah, so I think it's a bit less than that, um, but. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're splitting hairs a little bit. Also, like when do you start at the beginning of, of 2015, et cetera. There's different ways that you can calculate that. But in general, I think P- Canadians should understand that consumption is the largest chunk of most Western countries or economies' um, GDP. Um, it's a little bit less for Europe. Um, it's like Europe, it's, it's, it's a lot of its exports and that kind of thing. And and it's a little bit more for the U S where consumption, I think is like in the, in the high seventies in Canada, it's, it's sort of in the middle of that roughly. Well, and then, you know, the, sorry, I was just going to give some context. And so then you can, so how you determine GDP growth can be from investment or CapEx. It can be government spending consumption, and then it can be uh, household government, uh, sorry, household spending. And then there's a little bit of household investment. And what he was alluding to, which I think is right, is that um, a huge chunk, sort of a disproportionately large chunk of our GDP has been sort of the gross fixed capital formation or CapEx, as it's otherwise known, of specifically residential. Now, that's really shocking. It also is an indictment on our overall investment. So when you say that, you know, because the other side of that coin is that the investment in other um, let's say structures and equipment or intellectual property equipment, computers or software or research and development, all that stuff is getting basically crowded out because you're effectively only investing in residential capex. So you had the situation where most of the growth came from two things, which was consumption, Canadian household consumption, mostly debt and fuel, uh, debt fueled, debt driven, and residential capex. So yeah, that's the, that's the point he was making. And and whether we got whether it was 75 or 85 or whatever, the point I think he was really trying to make and I think you're making is that it's huge. It's unsustainable. It's dangerous. It's not strictly productive. And eventually sort of the tide goes out and that's and that's sort of where we're, we're in the situation we're in now.
0: Yeah, no, so I'd like to just kind of touch on that point and expand a bit further because I think that the, the central bankers, I feel like are, are right in the fact that like, okay, well, if you're going to sort of, try to bring down inflation, uh, you know, let's let you know, let's let's hit consumers where it hurts most, which is, you know, the the wealth effect, right? So, you know, if so much of this, for example, in Canada is built on uh consumer spending consumption. Well again, guess what? If your house in 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 the suburbs there in Brampton, Ontario goes down by 20%, all of a sudden you're like, well, maybe I won't get the big new flat screen TV. And I think like again, maybe early days, but we are, are we not seeing this in, in some of the, uh, the these big ticker names reporting over the last week? Was it like target reporting, like excess inventories, Walmart? I mean, Amazon, I think it's talking about what uh, uh, a hiring pause or was it laying off a hundred thousand people, something along those lines. Um, we were also seeing today here that the trucking spot rates uh, reached a new cycle low yesterday. So, um, you know, basically trucker shipping prices are coming off. So I, I, Rich, I don't know, is there any sort of data you're looking at right now that, that is pointing towards sort of a, like this, this economic slowdown clearly in process that inflation expectations are maybe coming off. Um, I think the equity market is clearly telling us in these retailers that. Yeah. You stole my
1: punchline. You stole my punchline. So, I mean, and it's a really good point by you. So in general, I think everyone should understand that most economic data is, lagging. So it's lagging for two reasons. One, it literally takes time for these processes to feed through to people and then through to surveys. And it's also lagging for a second reason, which is um, it just takes time to collate to the data. It takes time to ask the 4,000 uh, managers in the ISM PMI. And, um, and then it, you know, so for example, you'll get your April, we'll get our April employment data at the end of May, Right. So, and, and so that's really important. And so there are some economic indicators that are leading, um, but even that's a bit tenuous and it doesn't know the correlations lag and it doesn't lead by three months or six months. And then sometimes it doesn't lead at all. And so in general, you know, you, my life is always sort of, you know, trapped looking at backward looking data in a sense. Um, GDP is probably, you know, the, the most egregious example of that Germany's GDP for Q1 came out and it was plus 3.4 or whatever, you know, it's already almost the end of of Q2, right? So just to give, you know, listeners sort of uh, some context. So you asked me, what do I look at? I like, and then you sort of, you know, you stole my punchline, which is a really good point by you. I like to look at equity markets and um, credit markets as sort of little tiny um, indicators. Again, it's not foolproof. But indicator that the equity market will sniff out what's going on in the economy, not all the time, but a lot of the time, long before you sort of get that. Just as an example, um, you know, the other day you tweeted a chart on home equity, home capital group, the equity group or whatever. I can't remember the names. Now. Uh, equitable, equitable group. Yeah. And then there's a go sleep or sleep county or whatever it is. Right. Go so, easy. Go easy lending. Right. And so um, I see this all over the place, right? So whether it's political, um, you know, changes, things that's going on in politics. So you'll see like, you know, a defense company will start outperforming or, you know, before we got this recent um, uh, sell-off in growth, you know, consumer staples were starting to outperform. What does outperform mean? It means that the index is doing better than the, than the overall, right? So what I try to do is I, I have, you know, have many, many, many charts of what I call equity market bellwethers. Um, And and it's sort of, and I use them again, you you can't swear by them. It's not always perfect. And there are some false signals for sure, but it's something I look at basically religiously. So for every theme, whether it's energy, whether it's housing, whether it's, you know, luxury goods, whether it's, you know, green energy policy, all these different themes or robotics or uh, the theme you try to think of, the five, six stocks or equity mark, um, equity, yes, five, six stocks that sort of are at the cutting edge of whatever theme. And then you plot those, you you take really, really close attention. And then you see when there's inflection points, changes in trend, are they outperforming or underperforming the equity, the, the other equity market more broadly. And, you know, the, that's one of the reasons I love love financial markets, there's information in the price. Ultimately, that's what, you know, that's what I'm getting at. And I'll, and I'll pass it over to Keith. I'm sure he has his view too. The same is also true in credit markets. Again, we don't speak enough about credit markets here. It's something we should probably try to improve, but you could see there was, you know, we talked about it several weeks ago, um, credit spreads, right? Um, the, the, the amount of um, compensation you need to give lenders over the, let's say, risk-free rate, is starting to ratchet up higher and higher. And we haven't seen a real financial accident yet, but spreads are starting to widen long before foreclosures tick up, delinquencies tick up, consumer confidence ticks down, long before you see you see have people like uh, you know, the Volkswagen Financial Group say, you know, people are not paying back their car loans quick enough, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's just something that I mean is a really good point to bring up. It's a great topic to discuss with people who aren't necessarily familiar with these kinds of things, but I like to look at this. All the time, I call them bellwethers, um, and I have them for all different kind of sectors.
0: You got any commentary on top of that?
2: I forget the question. Truthfully, (laughs) classic. What was the question? I don't
0: remember. Uh, through Rich's rambling, no, Rich, it was a good, good, good segment there. Basically, um, just looking at some of this, you know, what equity markets are basically telling us, like anything in particular that you're looking at, which is like, you know, basically we're seeing the stockpiling of inventories at some of these massive retailers in across the U.S., which is sort of signaling, I think, uh, consumption is slowing um, that they might have over, over, overstockpiled, overbought. And, and I think that's what we're now seeing, obviously. Um, shipping or freight rates coming off as well, so maybe this is a, the early signs of inflation at least peaking and, and beginning to roll over. Now, again, it'll probably still remain elevated due to you know the the global shortage of commodities, but uh, I think we've probably seen close to the highs in in consumer led inflation.
2: I mean, it's, so it's a really good point. I know we've talked about it before, in that. The real economy and financial markets, they're never in sync. So that's why like frequently you might see some models where, you know, they'll take overlay, say the stock market over another data point, but they'll take like six months moving forward or six months lagging or something to that effect. And that's how you can forecast where things are going. Um, in, in our mind, we, we think there's a, a pretty high probability that economic growth it is slowing. It's going to slow, um, depending on where you are in the world. Whether we, you know, hit a recession or we go down pretty dramatically with growth. Uh, sorry, with growth in uh, Q3 or Q4 this year or Q1. That's that's where we're headed. I mean, that's where we're going to go. That doesn't mean equity markets continue to go down from today into that period. Maybe with equities, maybe we find a trough here over the next few months. And you know, then they can start taking off again, which was really sort of, you know, reconcile with central banks stop hiking rates and, and things like that. You know, you, if you think of it, for do that you see perspective, that as a bear market rally coming, or or do you think we've got one more
0: big puke to come, kind of thing? I mean, um, crypto seem to be leading the way again. Another another big dumping is recording here today.
2: Yeah, I don't know if puking is, is the word to use, Um, I still don't think we have all the excess taken out of, for example, a lot of the losses in equity markets so far that they've really been taking place with companies that are just, they just weren't profitable. You know, you want to call them the unicorns or like a, a lot of these companies in the tech space that had spillovers and into other markets. Those are ones like they're down like 60 to 80%, right? Those guys are gone. Meanwhile, headline markets are probably down I'm guessing a 20% maybe, something like that. Um, yeah, so headline numbers can come down a, a bit more. Our primary equity models, uh, they're, they're suggesting to us that we're still in this, you know, downward trend. Um, it, it's, it's nothing to alarm us that, you know, we're going to have this puke, you know, that word that you just used, that like we're down. quickly. I mean, we don't see that, but we're in for a bit of a grind here coming up. And the big thing is, like I said, if if we do start, I I think we're headed lower economically. That's where we're going to go. It's going to have a lot of knock-on effects from that. And people just need to prepare for it. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on which way you want to react to it, um, you know, inflation is going to stay sticky. It it really is. And um, so, for your investment portfolios, there there are ways to make money from that, and there are ways to um, you know to reduce or minimize you know potential losses that are coming Uh, up.
0: I mean, I think there's, there's no question, I think over the next 12 to 18 months, and these are going to be very challenging times for, for a lot of people, unfortunately. And, um, you know, just to kind of touch on the way that government is, is handling this, uh, policymakers are opting to handle this is kind of really what we predicted again, right or wrong. Uh, it seems to be that they're going to point the finger at the large corporations, uh, for, you know, price gouging people. Um and and looking at you know various taxes on corporations like price controls are coming um and, you know we're, we've we now got more stimulus and helicopter money for low income families uh, so we had more recently we had uh, New Zealand coming out and I think they were saying they're going to give every you know household like twenty seven bucks a week uh, to sort of offset the cost of living crisis is what they're calling it. Uh, we just had the UK, as of today, with the day that we're recording this, coming out with a 25% uh, surcharge or tax on oil and gas companies um, because they are claiming that oil and gas companies are basically price gouging. And uh, yeah, so I mean, it's kind of leading to a very precarious situation because you know we've got this you know world economic forum ongoing at the same time, and it's like, well, guys, like everybody's governments are largely to blame for the current situation of commodity markets, right? I mean, you basically government's told every, every oil and gas company to stop drilling and exploring for new supply uh, because it was not good for the environment. And then now you've got this like, like shockingly, now you have a shortage. And so now you're going to tax them because they're price gouging, but Rich, I don't know if you want to chat on, on oil and gas and, and, and anything like that. Cause I, I think the one thing that kind of irks me and it's, I'm sure it's not people that are listening to this podcast, because I think that people that are listening to this are probably pretty well-educated, but when I see like, you know, for probably. example, like what's that probably, probably, <laughs> I, I, I have, I mean, maybe, or based, maybe not <laughs> based on the 200 people that came to the live event, they're all quite smart people. So we like them very much. Um, but, you know, I, I always see like people are upset right now. There's a lot of angst, there's inflation, wages aren't keeping up. And and so the, the average voter, which I think is unfortunately not that sophisticated, when governments are coming out, they're saying, oh, you know, the, the instant reply, if you go on Twitter, like any government that's talking about like rising fuel prices, the instant reply is, oh, these oil and gas companies are price gouging. Like we needed to tax them. And it's like, people don't realize that the price is set by the markets and obviously governments have an influence on the tax of so rich. I don't know if you all want to unpack that. I'm probably setting you up here for a, a, a big rant, but uh
1: <laughs> am I that obvious? Maybe, yeah, maybe
0: keep this, uh, keep this keep relatively calm and sophisticated here, but just give, give the listeners kind of a walkthrough.
1: Sure. I mean, for I think a nap just guys, I mean, a I mean, I mean, I mean, so there's a couple of things to unpack there. One is I think governments are always, I mean, we talk, I mean, I think they're always like looking. They're are a lagging indicator, and I think that's really something that I will probably go to the grave believing. Um, politicians don't lead; they follow. Um, very few times in history do you get a politician that actually leads. Right now, I think we're 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 sort of bereft of that. Um, and I think that on the inflation thing, and, and on the on the corporate profit on the corporate margin, and the, sorry, the corporate profit thing. I think that's exactly what's going on. Um, I think margins are going to come off margins are already at their all-time highs. Um, and I think that, you know, that's whether you look at the S and P 500 or in Canada or whatever it is. Um, and I think that that's, that's going to come down because the, the wage growth is, is snapping higher. All the input costs are going higher. And so, um, you know, instead of trying to mitigate and deal with the fact that they're going these, a lot of these, um, countries are going to deal with less revenue, not more going forward. You know, they're doing, in my view, the exact sort of wrong thing. I think the also the, the other the other thing is, you know, by by sort of blaming corporations for inflation, by blaming Russia and by blaming that, it, it it sort of absolves themselves from what we heard just a year ago, which is the build back better. It's this in this idea that you could have an unlimited deficits with no pain. We'll get to more pain and we'll get to pain in, in the gasoline sector in a second, but I mean that's really what we you've experienced, right? We've we've experienced sort of an incredible, unprecedented increase in liquidity, paired with you know budget deficits that were two x and in some cases three x what we saw in two thousand and eight. Again, with the lockdowns, which screwed the supply. I don't want to relitigate, you know, what I think is terrible COVID policy, but my point is. You know, this was a crisis that was manufactured by the people who are now telling you that they're going to be able to fix it by handing handouts. And so, you know, it's for me, it's really frustrating because um, it's quite circular to the point of it's sort of nauseating how circular it is. But the the, but the thing and then just to finish up on oil is like, you know, CapEx. I mean, there was a tweet from 2017 that I saw that someone put out. uh, It was Emmanuel Macron bragging about the fact that france has basically banned all oil exploration for the next and you know it's by 2040 all oil exploration in france will be banned now france has a lot of nuclear energy so maybe they can get away with that but you know, that is basically that is the hymn sheet by which every major politician was basically singing by and what we have seen with the invasion of ukraine And obviously, you know, the fallout from COVID is that the energy transition um, to green energy is causing shortages and it has caused inflation pressures and the pain, and there was no pain necessarily baked into that. All of this policy was sold to people. Um, that it would be painless, easy, cheap, wonderful, the best thing ever, great for your kids, great for your wife, great for everybody. And what we're seeing now is how much of a lie that is. Um, one thing that's really important, sort of from a technical standpoint, I'll pass to Steve, uh, to Keith rather, is that, you know, the reason diesel prices, for example, and gasoline prices have gone up is because of something called a crack spread. Now, crack spread basically is the, the difference between how much you, you costs for a barrel of unrefined crude oil versus the price that you sell at the pump. And the reason that there's a basically historically large crack spread, um, the reason they use the word crack is because that's what it's called when you're refining oil. You crack it, you crack the hydrocarbons, right? You've got different hydrocarbons, the longer the hydrocarbon, I believe, the uh, the more dense the fuel, and the shorter the hydrocarbons, the less dense the fuel, right? And so that's how you distill alcohol, and it's the same ways that that's you you refine oil. At the bottom you've got tar, and at the top you've got kerosene and and gasoline for a for a you know high performance car. And um, so crack spread it, it basically shows, tells you the and tells you the dislocation between the unrefined oil and refined oil. Anyways, all just to say they've been banning they've been not allowing jurisdictions have basically said you're not allowed to build any more refineries anywhere they've been mothballing refineries and then and so they, what i'm saying to you is this is the kind of obvious painfully obvious um fallout from bad short-sighted energy policy and so this idea and so now it's like it's really rich it's really stupid and i would and i would behoove all of our listeners and anybody that we're listening to, to just like push back on that, the re capital expenditure as a percentage of total assets for all of the global oil companies is at a 25 year low. And that the reason is, is because of places like CalPERS, which is the California teachers pension fund. And, you know, the the pension plan in pension plan in Quebec have divested, they have starved these companies of capital, they've told these companies they are not allowed to invest in capacity. And demand is not going down. And so you have a situation where you're not allowed to build any of the capacity you need into the system, but the demand for the product continues to rise because oil is super useful. As you guys know that I've, I've gone on and on about this. And so you have the situation where it's, it's anyone who was sort of paying attention. It was, it was rather obvious. So the big lie now is that these corporations, these oil companies, are gouging people. But the truth is, commodities are a shit business. And the reason they're a shit business is because you, as soon as prices go up, people spend money to capital expenditure to, um, to to eke out that extra marginal dollar. But for the first time in history, we have not allowed. And so just, you know, when you, when you read these headlines, it's important to just take a second and go, what did that, you know, talkative what, <laughs> guy rich who didn't know when to be quiet, you know, say to me, oh yeah, that's right. This is a purely self-inflicted wound this is an own goal Oil's not going anywhere and there's no capacity to alleviate the price pressures there's my rant voice
2: <laughs> i really enjoyed that rich i, yeah, I, I really No, okay. i i really knew uh, i knew all of this myself of course but um, of course, <laughs> of course. But uh the explanation of the, of the crack spread and, and how it works, I, I think a lot of people will find that incredibly useful. From from our perspective, you know, as money managers, you know, we we you know we, we tend not to take a, a, a to show our opinion on what should happen and what shouldn't happen. Instead, it's incredibly useful for your savings and your investments to know who's making the decisions and have they changed their mind on stuff. So what, what Rich, what you just described was a you know, outstanding foundation. So then as an investment manager and investors, everyone listening, you want to see, is there any evidence out there that the world leaders are changing that view? And fortunately, we get a pretty good perspective on this from what's happening in Switzerland uh, this week at the World Economic Forum. If people are not familiar with that, with the group, uh, do your own back search history on it and you'll discover what it is and what it isn't. Uh, but let, let's talk about some, I want to talk about some of the main themes that are being discussed there this week. And this helps us for managing portfolios. And again, it's re, it's irrelevant what our view is on anything. Instead, you always want to know what are the policymakers thinking? So I think first we'll start off with the whole concept of climate change and the world leaders over in Switzerland. Oh, by the way, it, it's Canada is very well represented at the World Economic Forum. Uh, boy, you can go on and on who's who's a member of that group. Mark Carney is there front front and center, of course. Um, our prime minister is he's been um, within that group for a number of years. Same with the leader of the NDP party, our Minister of Finance, christia Friedland. She's also there. One of the biggest uh, influencers behind the scenes for Canadian politics, Gerald Butts, he is front and center over in Davos as well. And so for that reason, we know that whatever policies are discussed and presented and everyone agrees to in Switzerland, they are going to come here into Canada. And what Rich just described with, you know, uh, demand will continue for oil products, Meanwhile, supply, the ability to get it, that's being strangled. That is not going to open up anytime soon. So the whole concept of, uh, from, you know, if you want to make money or, you know, not lose as much money as as you might elsewhere in the whole energy field, from my perspective, what I'm hearing in Switzerland, Switzerland this week, like it's, it's incredibly bullish for that story. Does that make sense with you guys as well?
1: Yeah, it does. Totally. Um, I just think, I just, well, can I just quickly add on, like one of the, the CEO of Norway's largest bank, which is a very rich lady and powerful lady, said the en- energy transition will cause energy shortages and inflation pressures, <laughs> but the pain, quote unquote, will be worth it. I mean, stuff like that, Keith, I don't know if, if you want to add to that. I mean, well, I, mean it's,
0: I mean, I think it's like, I think we should just clarify because yeah, I think, People here in Canada that are listening to this, we have it pretty pretty good, right? I mean we're commodity. Exactly right. When, When when she comes out and says that, like we're not like, okay, you know, we'll be impacted, we'll suck, you'll pay more at the pump, et cetera, et cetera, heat your home. You're talking about like people dying. Right, it's third in, world countries. It's in third it's, it's, world this, countries.
1: it's India's. It's the Sri Lankas of the world. It's it's the people who don't have the largest oil reserves in the world. Canada'll be fine. It's, yeah, like
0: exactly. It's these countries that have to you know import, uh, you know all the all these commodities essentially that uh, are 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 really going to be paying the price, and and there will be famine and death and and um, <clears throat> yeah, it's it's yeah it's it's unfortunate and, and Keith, so what I are think- the other
1: topics that they were talking that you want to cover? Yeah or? so
2: the, the other one that really caught my attention of course is uh, you know everyone's focused on the the, the Ukraine Russian war right now and um, so again you're always looking for pivot points like is it, what's going to happen here? Is it the change? Will it swing the other direction? There was only one person over there. Or well, I've heard, you know, in, over over the last week, who's even suggesting that there needs to be a, a solution here? You know, let's let's just end this the way it is right now, and, and that's Henry Kissinger, and he's effectively he was booed off the stage, you know, he, he's basically been called a uh, you know Russian stooge or a, a commie uh, for even suggesting that you know they come to terms with with the Russians, and the reason this is important to know is because. All the main policymakers out there, led by the Americans, they want war, they're, they're moving towards that. They, they are not backing down whatsoever. So from an economic and geopolitical and financial perspective, the probability of things escalating even further—it—it it continues. It—it's it, there. Um, you know, Turkey is getting involved by blocking both Finland and Sweden from not being able to join NATO. It, there's lots of stuff happening behind the scenes, and then and then on the other side, of course, you know, we just saw the American president, um, you know, announce to the Chinese that, yeah, sure, he'll—they'll definitely walk in and protect Taiwan, absolutely. To which afterwards. You know, the White House press secretary had to remind everyone that, no, no, he just misspoke. He didn't mean to say that. Uh, but again, the point is that the world right now, it is being um, heavily influenced by um, a very large sector that, is, is that profits from a war machine. To give you another example, the Americans have very quickly approved about $60 billion to go to Ukraine to help them on the war effort. And if, if, if there's been a few people in Congress and Senate that said, Hey, wait, that's a lot of money. You know, we need at least to audit this, sort of figure out where the money is going. And again, if we're even suggesting that, you know, you're, you're branded to be, uh, you know, a Putin puppet and, and things like that. No questions asked, 60 billion gone. And uh, to put that in perspective, because people get numbed by, by these big numbers all the time. During the last uh with the last American president, he wanted $5 billion to improve the wall down on, on the southern border. And uh, that was deemed to be too much money. That could not be considered for anything, $5 billion. And there's a lot of studies out there that show that just, just doing that wall would have had a savings of anywhere from $50 billion up to $200 billion And... Different kinds of direct and indirect savings you no, know, for the country. And no, squash, $5 billion, no, no deal. $60 billion being put on a crate with missiles and weapons overseas, no problem. No questions asked. But that's my point. Now that we know that's where the governments are headed and there's no turning back, it, it is likely going to create more conflict coming up, which could create even more higher stress points, I guess, or pressure points on the inflation side for the both, you know, oil energy as well as agricultural commodities. So you want that kind of stuff impact your Keith, portfolios. I just want to add.
1: To, sorry, something, sorry, so Sorry, I just want to say something like when, sometimes when you say profit, I think, you know, people have a narrow view of what profit means and I'm obviously guilty of that, but I think it's also about sort of um, politically profit. And when there's profits, there's also losses. So for example, you know, our government and many of the Western governments have sort of committed lots of political capital to fighting environment, fighting climate change in a very narrow way, renewable energies or bust, no nuclear, no natural gas, transition to natural gas, and nothing. And so for, and this is what I think, you know, this is the way I sort of perceive that, you know, this idea that they wanna profit from it because if they walk back, you know, like for example, something we talked about before we got on was um, of the majority of the price that you pay at the pump is taxes. And if they were really, really worried about, um, you know, working class people paying an increasing amount of their disposable income in, at the pump, they could just cut those taxes and it would alleviate a significant amount of pressure for the people who are most vulnerable and most likely to benefit. Um, similarly, if they just changed, for example, the carbon tax, or if they said, you know what? we need to, you're right, we screwed up. We need to increase supply of the world's most important commodity. they, would, they wouldn't profit from that kind of policy as good as it is for humanity, they would lose. And I think that that's, I think that's for me the way I see it. I mean there's just been so much political capital invested in this singular world view and any deviation from that, is perceived as weakness, and and they they are going to be discredited. I don't know. That maybe that's I know that's a bit of a tangential view of that. Maybe it's too generous of you, but I think that that's an important thing when you can when you consider these doubling down on renewable energies in Germany, doubling down on carbon taxes in Canada. I think it's important to remember that people have committed to this. Win, lose, or draw. They don't care what the right answer is. It's so so. It seems to me. I don't know, Steve. If you. Have oh that.
0: no! I think that's a good way to wrap it up. Is basically, um, I think it's north of so in BC. I think we have the highest gas prices in Canada. <clears throat> I think we're now. You know, I think a liter of gas was at two two twenty five a liter a week ago. Anyways, I think about north of sixty North of sixty cents. I think it's about sixty to seventy cents a liter uh it's apparently just straight taxes so uh keep that in mind next time you go to the pump uh funny enough and i just don't think it's going to be solved uh everyone just says well evs i mean good, good luck trying to get all the uh commodities uh mined uh you know to 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 support all these electric vehicles you know what's funny is a uh, city of vancouver where i live god bless is um they they've kind of branded themselves at the as the greenest city in, in, in the world. That's the, that's kind of like the mantra they're going for. So we're at the forefront of all these like I think borderline insane policies. Uh but one of the ones on their website is they've got this um climate emergency action plan. It says by 2030, 2030, 50% of the kilometers driven on Vancouver roads will be by zero emission vehicles. Not <laughs> gonna make it uh is how i'll say let's let's wrap it up there it's never gonna happen um but um you know people people i guess believe in it or want to believe in it because nobody's really sat down and done the research and figured out that it's just it sounds nice it's just not economically viable um But anyways, we'll, we'll wrap it up there as always. We appreciate your guys' support. Uh, Hopefully we didn't offend too many people there and lose too many listeners. But again, guys, this is not uh, about our political views or leanings or how we wish markets or governments would act. It's simply how it is. And uh, we're trying to basically cut through the noise and, um, that, that's it so all we ask is that you share this episode of one one friend continue to build loony
2: hour community and uh we'll see you next week